please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is in Hebrew 2, 5 to 9, as you can see in, on the screen, my back, on page 1001, in the Bibles around the room. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take them. They are for an offer from the church for those of us who want to grow in the, in the Word and don't have one Bible. I'll be reading in Portuguese today as a representation of the diversity of the people of God, which is a reminder for us that we are all equal, equally created in the image of God, that all races and languages are unique and beautiful to God. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll all say, thanks be to God. And this is with a heartful, a heartfelt gratitude for this wonderful word and message, which is the guiding light to our paths. Then we'll pray together. Let me get my app on. Porque não foi aos anjos que sujeitou o mundo futuro de que falamos, mas em certo lugar testificou alguém dizendo que é o homem para que dele se lembre, ou o filho do homem para que o visites. Tu o fizeste um pouco menor do que os anjos. De glória e de honra o coroaste, e o constituíste sobre as obras das tuas mãos. Todas as coisas lhe sujeitaste debaixo dos pés. Ora, visto que lhe sujeitou todas as coisas, nada deixou que lhe não estivesse sujeito. Mas agora ainda não vemos que todas as coisas lhe estejam sujeitas. Vemos, porém, coroado de glória e de honra aquele Jesus que fora feito um pouco menor do que os anjos, por causa da paixão da morte, para que, pela graça de Deus, provasse a morte para todos, por todos. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear and wonderful God, we thank you for all that you have given us. Thank you even for those things that we're not frequently aware of. Your amazing love for us still astonishes me. I ask for your grace upon our pastor, Mark, as he preaches for us. May we listen to the powerful whisper of his Holy, the Holy Spirit while we open our hearts and souls in humility. May we be obedient to the message according to your will and apply it in our daily walk. In Jesus' name, we pray. Good morning. morning. Right on. I love it when we read the Bible in another language. It reminds us how global the gospel is, how global God is. And we've we've been kind of confronted with how global something is with coronavirus, right? Uh, but God's kingdom is global, and, uh, and sometimes we kind of just 
get in our own little bubble, we realize there's a great big world out there that God loves. And when we read the scripture, even though you may not be able to speak Portuguese, it is honoring God because it's his word in a language that he's created. I just, I just love it. And speaking of this global pandemic, you guys are here. This is great. You're very separated, which I understand you're taking social distancing seriously. Get it? This is great. Still more people than I thought. I was like, it's probably going to be 10 people. You know, I'm just going to pour my heart out for a small group of people, hopefully very loud. Uh, but this is great. But I mean, it's, it's probably for the toilet paper, right? Like you've, you, you've run out and you're like, I, I got to get a load off. So you're like, you, you, you come to church. Heads up, that toilet paper, it is alarmed. So don't try to take it. Don't try to steal it. It'll get awkward. All right? So... But feel free. You're welcome. <laughs> Man, it's crazy out there, right? It is totally crazy out there. But I'm excited. I mean, the passage we're going to be in this morning could not be a better passage for what's happening. And that's just totally not by accident, but by design of God. I mean, this is the verses we were going to preach. And at the same time on a day that many churches aren't even meeting today, which makes sense in light of everything. And yet we, we still feel pretty confirmed to, to get together here and get in the word together and, until we know otherwise. But um, God's good. And um, this passage is perfect. Um, but man, it, it's a little crazy out there. And, um, and it's, it's hard to imagine what, how all this is going to kind of pan out. But I do think I think, man, it's such a special moment because these are the moments that the church gets to shine. You remember like way back when the Black Plague was happening, 300 million people or more died in the Black Plague. It was the Christians that were the first responders. When everybody else was moving out, the Christians were moving in, caring for the sick, making sure neighbors had food and, and whatever medicines were available and took care of those who were dying or grieving because of the loss that they suffered. I think we have a moment to shine here. And I'm excited about the opportunity that God has given us as a church to be really good and take serious this idea that we are in the city for the city. And so I, I think it's going to be incumbent to all of us to, um, to view this as a moment to make Jesus look really good to us with the right precautions. I mean, we're using gloves for communion. We're not getting crazy here, right? Not, but, but the idea of taking care of neighbors and neighborhoods and making sure that if people are, are, um, are in quarantine, those kind of things, that they have what they need. And that's what you can do as a good neighbor. That's what we can do as a church. So when we talk about giving, one of the things that I would just re-emphasize as Pastor Matt did is we want to be very good to our neighbors and city in this season. And so please be generous because we want to be generous. And, um, and so we don't exactly know, obviously, how all this is going to pan out. But man, I am excited to make Jesus look good in this season. And I hope that you're excited to do that um, with us. And so that's where we're at. And that's, that's where this passage is going to get us. Because in order for that to take place, it takes us looking in a certain way or in a certain direction. Um, when I was when I was growing up down Long Beach and uh, and learning how to surf, I was taught that in order to steer the board, you would steer the board wherever you look. When I was learning how to snowboard in San Bernardino Mountains, uh, a friend of mine told me snowboarding: when you snowboard, whatever direction you want to go in, if you want to carve 
as they call it, then you look first and then your board will follow. The mistake is trying to force your board, but in fact, you just turn your head and then your board will follow. If you're surfing, you turn your head and your board will follow. Wherever you're looking, that's where you're going to go, right? When it comes to those kind of sports and, and almost anything else. Wherever you're looking, if you're bowling, people, if you're looking at the floor, you're not going to hit the pins. But if you're looking at the pins, you'll hit the pins, right? Especially if you have bumpers. Like the, that's, always, that's, that's also another good tip, by the way, right? But wherever you're looking, that's where you're going to go. And if we're, if we're looking at Christ, it's going to change how we interact in this very uncertain season that our entire planet is in, right? But there's lots of things to look at, isn't there? You go on your Facebook feed, you see pictures of empty shelves. Who's went shopping recently? There's no food. You're buying things you would never want to buy, you know? Like when the cauliflower's gone, you're like, it's bad, you know? Like that's, <laughs> right? Like it's crazy out there. It's nuts, you know? Like people are waiting in lines, the toilet paper fiasco. This is what we're going to be talking about in five years. And we're like, I don't remember the name of that virus. I think it was a beer, but I... I, I, I do remember having to cut my t- paper towels into thirds, you know? So it's like, it's craziness out there. You look at the stocks, it's like all of the money that we've recently made, right? All gone. Our 401s, our whatever, our retirement accounts, it's a lot of uncertainty. And, it, you, and we're just inundated with looking at these things. And when we look at those things, then that's where we go. When we look at those things, that's where we turn. The preacher of the book of Hebrews knew that his audience was looking at some stuff. And the things that they were looking at were causing them to turn away from the gospel of Jesus that they had believed in and trusted in and was turning to other things. The things they were looking at was angels. That's his very first part of this. They were looking at the angels. They were worshiping angels. Now, as we discussed These are Greek enculturated Jews. They were Hellenistic Jews, which means they had a bit of Greek culture and they had a bit of their Jewish roots. Both of them, both the Greek culture and the Jewish roots, both celebrated and worshiped angels in different periods. Not because that's how God designed it, but because that's kind of what naturally happens. So like if for the Greeks, we talked about the angels, the messengers of the gods, like Zeus and Hades and them, they have these angels, these messengers that they would send out. And so then what did the Greek people do? The the Greek people, they built temples and places of worship and they honored these messengers and hoping to have encounters to because to be met with one of the messengers is like meeting with the God himself. That's how they viewed it. But then the Jews also elevated angels. That wasn't the design, but because the Jews loved the law of God and we're told both in the Old Testament we're seen and in the New Testament, we're told directly like in Galatians that the angels brought the law to God's people, delivered the law. Well, the law is so important and so significant. Like we look at it and go, that's a bunch of rules. But the way that God's people looked at it was God has given us a society and God is ruling us as a people. Praise God for the law. And then somewhere along the way, they took their eyes off God who wrote the law and put their eyes on angels who gave it to them. And so then you had the Greeks and the Jews, and at different periods, they were elevating angels. They put their eyes on angels. 
And the, and the preacher of Hebrews wants them to divert, look at something different, that they have their eyes elevated on the wrong thing. They were looking at the angels. And so we find ourselves in, in verse five, we've been talking about angels. And as Pastor Jim last week was, uh, was preaching on, on chapter two, one through four, verse three has what's called one of the, the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There's five of them. And in fact, the five distinct topics that we're gonna be looking through in each of the sections are all kind of hinged on these warning passages. These warning passages kind of form the hook that, that, all, that, that the author's trying to um, get us to understand the implications of these warnings. In chapter three, or chapter two, verse three, here's the warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The warning is, if you take your eyes off Jesus and neglect the grace and the salvation of Jesus, how will you be saved? The, 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 the rhetorical answer is, you won't. Now, lots of people, and, and, and we can be one of them at different times in our life, where we think all escape in a different way because Jesus is just another road of, the uh, same road of a different God or a different name, something to that effect. And so my spiritual reality is just another road and Jesus is just another road. And so this great salvation that you're referring to, I'll get there if I just get there by a different name or a different religion. But the Bible, that's not how the Bible's saying it. The Bible's not saying, how shall we escape if we neglect any kind of spiritual experience? No, no, it's how will you be saved if you neglect such a great salvation. If you walk away from Jesus and two angels, how then will you be saved? And the answer is you can't, you won't. There's no other salvation apart from this great salvation. And they were looking to the angels and the preacher wants them to divert and look at something different. So then we have verse five. That's where we get into today. Verse five, verse five starts with this word for, and the significance of this word is it's connecting us back to this warning passage in verse three about the great salvation. Now, this word for, it's, it's, it's a more grammatical, it's a better way to speak than we do. We would use the word because, but it's actually the word for, uh, which means the same thing. So it's like, how would you neglect, how would you be saved if you neglect Jesus, how would you be saved if you neglect this great salvation? Because or for, that's the argument. It would be like, I don't know if your kids do this, if you have kids, but when they come home from school, they eat first dinner. You guys know this, right? My kids do. They come home and it's like, you know, a can of SpaghettiOs, a cup of noodles. I know you're judging me, but this is, it's their life, you know? So I'm not arguing it, you know? It's like, you want to eat it? Go for it. Anyway, but they, they come home and they eat a bunch. And what do I say? When I come home, they're, they're eating and they're making all this like first dinner thing. And I'm like, don't eat all that for we're going to have dinner, right? That's like a nightly thing, I have to say. That's daily I got to have this argument every day. I know this argument for very well. It's the idea of because, don't eat now because we are about to have dinner, right? That, that's the idea. Don't worship the angels. Don't neglect this great salvation because or for, that's the idea. 
For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world. That's verse 5. It wasn't to the angels. Don't worship the angels. And by the way, don't neglect the salvation and worship the angels because it wasn't to the angels that God gave control of the world over. That's verse 5. Now, what verse 5 is doing is not, all, not only addressing the angel issue, but, but giving us a, a, a deeper understanding of what this great salvation means in verse 3. What does this great salvation mean in verse 3? Well, we're told in verse 5, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, which is the connection for us is, do you know what the, pre, the preacher of Hebrews is speaking? He's speaking about a great salvation. What's the great salvation? It's the world to come. That's the logic. That's the idea. This is this great salvation. It's not that everything in our life right now gets worked out exactly how we would want it. That's not great salvation. Great salvation is a future. It's a world to come. And it wasn't a world to come that was handed to the angels. That's, that's the argument. This great salvation in which we are speaking. God didn't give authority to bring about this world to the angels. Okay, so great salvation means a world to come. And then verse 6 through the first part of 8, the preacher is going to give us a better idea of what does this world to come actually mean. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. You know who wrote this, this little thing that he's going to quote? King David. You know that guy? Pretty famous dude, right? He doesn't say, as it's been said by King David, whom everybody knows, you know, pretty famous guy. It had been like, you know that one guy who said four score and seven years ago, you know? You, oh, you mean Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, that's who I mean. Yeah, that, that's how he quotes King David, which I just find funny. Um, it's, been it's been testified somewhere. And then Psalm 8, he's gonna quote Psalm 8 by King David. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, we're pros in Psalm 8. I don't know if you, might, if you remember, just a couple weeks ago, we taught Psalm 8 in our attribute series. Do you remember the attribute, God is majestic? Psalm 8, 1 starts with, how majestic is your name? Right? And we talked about the character trait of God's majesty. That's this psalm. So we already have an idea. And part of that teaching, we saw that God was inviting man and woman, God was inviting his people, made in his image, to one day rule the world, work in and with God to oversee creation. And that's what the Psalm 8 is all about. This great salvation which is future-focused, the world to come. And what is the world to come? Look at in the last part here. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory, not glory and honor in the world to come. And what? Putting everything in subjection under his feet. The world to come is when everything gets rightly ordered with God, us, and creation. It's the garden life. You remember in the garden... They were to go out and subdue the garden, right? They had a job to do. But then they sinned, and the garden that they were meant to subdue now subdues them, right? The, 
They were, they were to rule over the animals. They were to plant and grow, right? They were, they were to subdue creation. But then when they fell and they walked away from God, they also fell in the order of ruling. And now all of a sudden, creation rules us. Is that not true with coronavirus? Right? The creation is ruling us now, right? Earthquakes rule us. Famine rules us. Floods, tsunamis, all of these things. You know what those are? It's the reverse garden. It's because sin has entered the world and now things are out of order. And now what man was created by God to rule over creation with God, by the authority of God, now creation rules over man. And so what is then this great salvation? It is the world to come in in which what? Everything is put in the proper order. What's the promise here? Glory and honor. That, That just means perfection, right? And being with God, being welcomed to the table of God, honored by God, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That the world to come is a place in which the world is made right. This is the great salvation. Now, the point of the preacher is to say to this audience, the future that you are looking for, the future that you are looking to, and to gain by the angels, the angels cannot give you. Because the angels were not given the world. Verse five, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. The future is not in the angels' hands. That's the idea. And then we're told at the very end, why would you worship the angels when in the end you are gonna be above the angels in the proper order? In a, for a little while, you're below the angels, but there is coming a day when you will rule the world and rule over creation with the authority of God back in that place that was like the garden when all things are made right. So then the, it appears that angels are higher, but they're actually not higher. They're only higher for a little while. And then everything's gonna be in the proper order. And that's the world to come. That's this great salvation. The great salvation when God makes all things right in the right place. And what the preacher of the book of Hebrews wanted them to know is the weakness of the angels that you worship to bring about the future that you promise, that they promised. Now, when we were talking about angels a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about angels in specific, but maybe you're here and you're like, I don't, you don't even care about the angels. But the angels represent more than just these spiritual kind of beings, like you have a guardian angel watching over, you know, that kind of thing. The angels represent creation, the created thing. And the, and the, the great sin was not that they were worshiping angels. The great sin is that they were worshiping the created instead of the creator. That was the great sin, which then in light of that, what the preacher is really saying is it's not for created things that God has given the future to. It is for the creator, and we'll see, namely Jesus, that God has given everything in subjection to him and that we will rule with him in this life to come, which, which means this, that we trust that the things that we love will bring us the better life that they promise us. That's another way of saying we 
look to and follow the things that we look to and follow because they, we believe and we love them for it that they will bring a better world to come. We're all, we're all like pleasure-seeking people, aren't we? None of, us are, are, none of us are in the things that we're into and love the things that we love because they don't provide pleasure. They're giving us a message like an angel. They're delivering a message to us. And that message says, if you love me and this thing, then I will give you a better world to come. And so then what? We give ourselves. We give ourselves to those things that are pleasurable in our life because we actually believe that they'll make us better. And so then we, we, we look to family and romance and sex and money and security and safety and property and rights and amendments because we think in them is a better world to come. And the preacher of Hebrews goes, no, it wasn't to those things that God gave the future to. Those things have no future. They can't provide the thing that they promise. So the angels are weak. The creation is weak. That, that's the first part. Don't, don't neglect this great salvation, which is really about this future world to come. Not now. It's now in part, but this future to come. But it's weak to get you there. So why are you worshiping the angels? And then it's going to go on to this next section in verse 8, part B. Look at how he goes on, continuing. Look, look, where are you looking? It says this, now... So he quotes Psalm 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, here's where everything changes. Psalm 8 has always been taught, and we taught, that it's about the future of people, that God's going to redeem people and set everything back in the right order. But here we find that there's something deeper happening. You know, our series is called Out of the Shadows, right? And the reason why we named it Out of the Shadow is because in every page of the Old Testament, every page in, in the Jewish history is the shadow or the whisper of Jesus. And that the book of Hebrews is actually taking the things that are a whisper about, the, about Jesus in the Old Testament and bringing it out into fruition, bringing Jesus out of the shadows. And do you see this is how he does this in the, in the, in the second half of verse 8? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, if you, if you go down, I'll show you for a second here. In verse 9, it says, but we see him. We'll get back to that. For in a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, if you circle that, namely Jesus, what's significant about that is this is the first time that the preacher uses the name Jesus. It's like this great introduction he's taken in, in chapter one all the way through the mid part of chapter two to go, and it's Jesus. Check this out, it's Jesus. You know what I've been talking about? I don't know if you can see me coming. It's Jesus, right? Like that's, that's his excitement, I love it. So namely Jesus, which means the second part of verse eight is what it's talking about. The him and the his. The him who is in control and the his who has control is Jesus out of the shadows. Which means Psalm 8 is about us, but it's about us through the person and work of Jesus. It's not the angels that are going to bring you the future that you desire. It is Christ, namely Jesus. And, and, and here comes this issue. 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. God's given him everything. And we just talked about that in, in chapter one, right? That Jesus is the heir of all things, that, that by the word of his power, Jesus keeps all things in existence. We, we, we saw that there's not anything that was made that didn't come through the, creative, the creativity of Jesus. So everything is in subjection to him. He is in control of everything. Jesus reigns over all things. Nothing that exists is outside of his control. Right on, huh? Here's the problem. And the preacher addresses it. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The angels are weak, but then here's the conflict. We, what we know is in conflict with what we see. Also, a pretty significant reality in light of where we're at. Because it's an amazing thing. Think about it from the lens and perspective of a Christian trying to communicate this to somebody who's outside of that perspective. You're like, I know what looks bad out there. I know some stuff's going down. I know in this world, People are suffering. I know there's death. I know there's, there, there's hardship and suffering. That just makes absolutely no sense to anyone. But Jesus is in charge of it all. And, and the world's like, what are you talking about? You're like, look, I know this. I know that coronavirus is, is enveloping the globe right? I know there's not toilet paper on any shelf, right? I know this is an issue, but I'm telling you, Jesus is in control. You see how weird that is? I know we're like so easy because we're used to it. We understand it. We have a biblical knowledge. We're like, yes and amen. Uh Uh-huh. But from the outside, you're going, you're taking crazy pills, because if this is what it looks like for Jesus to be in charge, there's a problem. And if we're honest, is that not a conflict that we experience from time to time? This is our experience, and yet Jesus has the whole world in his control. How in the world? You've heard of uh, cognitive dissonance, this difference between two truths trying to make sense of. I I believe there's something that's called Christian dissonance. And Christian dissonance is when what I'm experiencing is totally different than what I know to be true. This is, this, this is what it means to, to walk with God. He's, he's calling out this church going, look, Jesus is in subjection to all things. Psalms 8, God's gonna put it in proper order. It's really about Jesus. Jesus is in the proper order. There is no part of creation that Jesus is not in control of right? And so then therefore he can bring you into this great salvation, the world to come. But here's the problem, church. We don't yet see that everything is in his control. That's called Christian dissonance. Because you know, this church is suffering, right? Like we have a, we have a pandemic epidemic. They, they had one too. They, they, they were being removed from their homes. They were 
refugees fleeing Israel, fleeing where the gospel was birthed in Jerusalem. And then they were first and second generation Christians being scattered through the known world. And these Christians have shown up now in Italy, who this preacher is preaching to. And you know what? They have lost homes. They have lost inheritance. They have lost jobs. They have lost credibility. They have lost seniority. And in Sacramento is one of the, the largest Afghan populations that come over as, as refugees. And when we were over there, we were working with these Afghan populations. And some of the people that I had met, I had met one guy who in Afghanistan was a doctor, affluent and successful, but because of war, he ended up fleeing and he arrived here in Sacramento and now he washes dishes at a restaurant because the credits don't transfer over, the experience doesn't transfer over, the, the hospital stuff doesn't transfer over. He, here in the U.S., it's as if that life never existed. And you just break for a man like that, right? That's the church that this author is preaching to. They, had, they were fleeing, they were scattering all over the European continent, running for their lives because they were under great persecution. And so when the preacher's like, hey church, I know you're running for your life. I know you've, you've given up all of these things. You've left everything behind. I know you have no credibility in your new environment. I know you're trying to adopt their Hellenistic culture to fit in and find jobs and learn the language and all of those things. I know it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. I know you gave your life to Christ and now you're running for your life. I know that it doesn't look like Jesus is, has everything in subjection to him. But he does. And we have to be honest that that sounds crazy sometimes, right? So then, what is, what's the preacher lead us to? And this is where it gets good. Nine, verse 9, look. At present, we do not yet see everything in subject to him. Verse nine, but we see him. That's amazing. Now it goes back to wherever you look is where you're going to turn, right? And wherever you look and whatever you're looking at, you'll ultimately embody that thing or the message of that thing. And here's what the preacher of Hebrews goes, no, 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 look at him. Look at him, we see him. I know you're in conflict with the reality of Jesus being in charge and the reality of your experience. Look at Jesus. If you look at your experience, your faith will fail. But if you look at Jesus, you'll be able to navigate this. That's the idea. Ultimately, the preacher of, of Hebrews is encouraging the church, church, fix your eyes, not your experiences. But what we try to do, our great temptation, especially when we're in discomfort, pain, grief, uncertainty, anxiety, out of control, spiraling, subject to a virus we can't see. And no matter how many times I wash my hands, it's not up to me. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here. It could happen today. Look at him. See him. Put your eyes on him. Don't try to change, don't try to fix your experiences, fix your eyes. That's the point. Now, we try to fix our experiences 
Because if Christian dissonance is a thing, um, psychology teaches us about cognitive dissonance that what we are always trying to do is we're always trying to find equilibrium between the two truths we, don't, we can't make sense of. And I think as a Christian, what we're often trying to do is find out how to make sense of the differences between my experience and the reality that Jesus reigns. And I think we tried to do this in, in four ways. We try to fix our experience. I think in the first way we do this, we, we try to change our experience or we try to change our beliefs to make sense of the difference between Jesus' reign and rule and my experiences. So it looks like this. We try to change the experience by saying, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. And then we have all these deconversion stories that many people in our culture have. I grew up a Christian. I was a Christian. And then as I became an adult, I realized there's too much pain and suffering in the world for Jesus to be real. And so therefore, I walked away from Jesus. And what that is, is trying to change the experience to make sense of the rule of Jesus and the pain in the world. So we say things like, I just won't be a Christian anymore. Or we try to change the belief, which is, I'll just blame it on the devil. Because I can't make sense of a Jesus who is in charge and reigning and everything is in subjection to him. He's in the right order in the proper place. And yet my experience has such suffering. Maybe that's because there's power in the hands of demons or in Satan to do things in my life and God allows that to happen. So there's a, there's a guy that I have Facebook friends with and he posted something even yesterday about the coronavirus. Here's a, here's a great example. Now he's a Christian. I know he loves Jesus, but uh, he's a bit sideways in, in how he's viewing it. But he, he literally posted how every aspect of what the coronavirus is doing in our culture is actually a particular demon that's controlling it. So one of the things that he posted was, you know how the coronavirus kind of came from nowhere, we're not exactly sure, it has kind of uncertain origins. Was it a lab? Was it a bat? Whatever it was, right? It's kind of uncertain. So he posts on there, this is literally what he posted. He posted on there and said, the coronavirus has an uncertain cause, which, which means it's the spirit of the demon of confusion. And then he threw a couple verses that don't, that don't really address it, but threw a couple verses out there and said, this is how you fight the spirit of confusion. Do you know what that is? That's trying to make sense of Jesus being in charge and yet this is our reality. And it's trying to find equilibrium through what? A different belief, changing what I really believe or changing what I'm experiencing. But, but the Christian life is meant to be lived in Christian dissonance that both these things are true, right? The second way we try to change our experiences is that we will try to justify our experience or belief by changing the conflict. And this is how people do it. People go, okay, well, I'm experiencing hardship in my life. It must be because harder is better. It must be because Jesus is more honored the harder that I have to fight. Well, that, that's not true, actually. But people are caught up in like, well, if it's not, if it's, if it's easy, then it must not be really of God. God would only call me to do really difficult things. And so therefore, I'm justifying the difference between my experience and God's control by saying, no, no, this, this is harder. So then therefore, it's better worship. Or thirdly, we justify our experience or belief 
by adding new behaviors and beliefs. So things like this. We might say, things are happening in my life because I don't have enough faith. Or we might say, this, this thing is happening to me. I'm experiencing this sickness or cancer or this hardship because I don't do enough Christian things. I can't tell you how many times I, I've talked with people who are going, you know what, I've really let my prayer life slip. I haven't been following Jesus and it makes sense now why I lost my job. And it's like, it, maybe there's a correlation, but it has nothing to do with because you stopped praying, you lost your job, right? But, but these things are all happening. But the idea is, it's like, okay, well, uh, I don't, I'm not doing enough Christian things, so then therefore God took this from me. Or there's, this is happening because I don't have enough faith, because I, I can't believe that Jesus would just sit there and let this happen, so then therefore it must be me. I'm going to take control of it and go, I don't have enough faith, so therefore Jesus can't work. How many people have said, you, there can't be miracles where you don't have faith? And they go to that verse and says, well, Jesus couldn't do miracles because the people didn't have faith. That, that, that's not an exact reality. None of us have enough faith. It's all by grace. I listened to a podcast a couple weeks ago where somebody was asking Pastor John Piper a question and he said, I know the Bible says you just need faith like a mustard seed. And recently my dad was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. And he said, I prayed, I prayed with all my faith and and in the hospital, even after my dad lost consciousness, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and he still died. And he said, Pastor John, did my dad die because I didn't have enough faith? That is heart-wrenching. We don't like the tension that God is in control or that Christ has the whole world to come subject underneath of him. And yet my experience looks like this. So I try to justify my experience by adding new behaviors or beliefs. Fourthly, I justify my experience by just ignoring or denying that it exists. This has been a thing where, you know, if you've known people who are not believers and they walk in the church and one of the things that sometimes gets said and sometimes is valid and sometimes is not, but some of the things that get said sometimes are like, these people are pretending that there's not a real world out there. And maybe in your journey of coming to Christ, maybe when you came to the church, you're like, I've met some people where they were just completely fake, put on the smile. And it's like, we just kind of ignore that this tension exists. We're like, there's no struggle. <laughs> Hallelujah. You know, Jesus is alive, you know, and it's like, you're not accounting for reality. The Bible doesn't say Christians don't grieve. The Bible says Christians grieve differently, but they grieve. They cry, they weep. We're told weep with those who weep, grieve with those who grieve, celebrate with those who celebrate. That's what Romans tells us. So the idea that we just ignore it and put on a happy face and go, there's no struggle. Jesus is good. He's alive. Brother Larry's not with us anymore, but hallelujah. You know, like that kind of a thing. And then we come across totally fake. And what is that? It's trying to fix our experience. All these things are about fixing our experience. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to see him. 
We don't fix our experience, we fix our eyes. And when I say fix our eyes, I mean it in both ways. One is our eyes are broken, right? We need our eyes fixed. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But two, we need to fix our eyes in the sense of we need to stare, gaze, strain, look at him. We see him. Now, when it says we see him, what are we supposed to see? We're supposed to see his experience. See, the whole thing is that my experience and Jesus reigning does not line up. What am I supposed to see? I'm supposed to see Christ's experience. Look how it, look how it breaks down. It says this, we see him. Now he's going to give us the experience of Christ. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So there we are again. But we see him, namely Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's connecting to Psalm chapter 8, isn't it? Psalm chapter 8 says, for a little while we're lower than the angels and then we are given the great salvation which is the world to come when everything is set in the right order. But Jesus for a little while was made lower than angels. What's the, what's, what's the hope? The, the hope here is, or the idea here is about the incarnation. That Jesus left the throne of heaven, that Jesus left glory and honor and became like us, one of us, took on flesh and lowered himself below the angels just like us. Which means his experience, he put on our experience. Not only did he put on our flesh, he put on our humanity and everything related to being human, which is our experience. He humbled himself and lowered, uh, lowered himself. Therefore, here, here's Here's the idea of the preacher. Therefore, if, if Jesus came, on the lowest, came down to the lowest rung, why is it so weird that Christians would too? Why is it so different? He became nothing, and then when we become nothing, we're like, no, 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 I deserve more than nothing. And we go, no, no, I, st- I deserve more than Jesus. That's what we're saying. Listen to John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And we look at that verse and go, oh, man, like I, I don't like it, but do I really believe that? The servant is not greater than the master. But is it not true that we are working so hard to gain for ourselves an experience that is greater than Jesus? And we look at Jesus and go, okay, well, Jesus who was perfect and holy, lowered himself and became nothing. Isaiah tells us there was nothing in him appealing. He didn't have good looks. He didn't have a good life. He was humble and poor and nothing and became a servant and then surrendered unto the cross. And we look at that and go, I want something better. I want a better experience than Jesus. Really? The servant is never greater than the master. If the servant wants to be greater than the master, then that is not your master. So first, as we look at the experience of Jesus' incarnation, if Christ, then me, church, is what the preacher is saying to these Christians hurting in Hebrews. Do you want a better life than Christ? Why do you want a better life than Christ? 
And then it goes on. The second thing we're meant to see is it says, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So first we're to see the experience of Christ in his incarnation. Secondly, we're to see the glorification of Christ through suffering. Because of suffering death. So we're not talking about death itself. We're talking about the process of the suffering of death, which is also our human experience. And that out of the suffering of death, what happened? Jesus was crowned and given honor. Also comes out of Psalm 8. He was put in the proper order because of what? Because of suffering, he got ordered. He got glory. He got honor because of suffering death. And the word here, crowned, is a continual crown. He was crowned continually because of his suffering. Therefore, his experience through hardship and suffering brought glory and honor. Therefore, our experience of what we are experiencing in light of the sovereignty of God is bringing for us glory and honor in the way that it brought Christ. We're told that 2 Corinthians, really familiar for this light and momentary affliction, right? We know this verse. Do we believe this verse? This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the thing, as we look not to the things seen, experience, but to the things that are unseen, Christ. For the things that are seen, experience, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, the world to come, the great salvation. Yeah, do you see it? It's all there. Gosh, it's like somebody wrote this Bible on purpose. (laughs) Which means what? Listen, if you get coronavirus, you are getting that virus because in getting that virus, you are being prepared for a weight of glory that would not otherwise come if you didn't have it. Now, that's if they get a mild form or a severe form. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory and honor in the world to come that I would not otherwise know. And because I know that, I'm keeping my eyes on Christ, who is unseen. At present, we do not see him having subjection over all things, which just means this. You are experiencing now in order to experience then. You are experiencing grief, hardship, loss, darkness, physical pain, uncertainty, loss, so that you can experience joy and glory and weight. Oh, man. And you're meant to see it in Christ. And thirdly, you're meant to see the experience of Jesus in his death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we're to look at his incarnation, we're to look at his suffering, and then we're ultimately to look at his death, and it all revolves around this word taste. And this idea of taste is an idiom of the day. It was just a, a statement of the day, and it meant to experience the whole. When you said the word taste, it meant to experience the whole, which is why I'm making this whole sermon about the difference between God being over all things and my experience. 
Because at the very end here, what we're told is that Jesus experienced death for everyone. And what it is, it is an argument from greater to lesser. Meaning this, the Bible says death is the greatest enemy. Not Satan, not the demons, not the, not the spirit of confusion, death. In fact, we're told in the Bible that the last enemy to be killed is death. Death is the greater enemy because it's the, it is the tool that the devil uses to tempt us and to keep us from having faith in Jesus. And from surrendering our life to Jesus. Because we're afraid of death to some degree. Death is the great enemy. Is this not a reality that we were all shocked by in the Kobe incident? Because how does a, a man so successful, young, prevalent, talented, famous, die in a nonsensical helicopter crash? Because death is a great enemy. And there's nobody that beats it. And that's part of the reason why we respond the way we do in such a tragedy. Because if Kobe, then, then me for sure. That's how we think. That's how we think. It's a great, it's, it's a great tool. It's a great weapon of the enemy. And God's going to kill it. And what we have here is Jesus tasted death for everyone. His experience, death. So that by his experience, no death. And, and it's an argument from greater to lesser. If the greatest enemy, then whatever your experience is, is a lesser enemy. Keep looking at Jesus. That's the idea. Because he became our substitute and experienced death for all of us. And then it says, why? By the grace of God. And here's the, the pinnacle argument in Hebrews Chapter 2, 5 through 9. The grace of God. We are people who are meant to experience not the fullness with our eyes and our experience, the complete control of God. We are meant to be people who live in the Christian dissonance because in that spot is the experience of grace. And that experience of grace is so far profound, more profound than we can realize. It is so significant. It's not just thrown in there, by the grace of God. No, no, no. The author, the preacher is calling the church going, your experience is the experience of grace. And the experience of grace is what makes you higher than the angels. Yesterday in the car, we, we were, I, was, I was in the truck with the three boys. We were on our way to get firewood so that we can make our own toilet paper. It's a process, but it's happening. And we were, you know, what I love here is that our kids and our students are having the same conversations that we're having here, and so were my boys. And one of the things that came up in conversation was how, how it seems like angels are greater than us. They're more powerful. They can, you know, fly. They have, like, all these eyes on their wings, you know, like, you know, it seems like they're pretty cool. Why, why are we better than the angels when it seems like they're better than us? And I was like, well, I'm glad you asked because I'm preaching on that tomorrow, actually. 
And we had this great conversation in the truck yesterday and, and here's the answer. Do you know what the answer is? Why are we higher than the angels but only for a little while we're lower? It's because while we're lower, we get to experience the grace of God of which the angels will never know. The angels will never know grace. The angels who rebelled against God, they were thrown out forever. The angels that remained obedient are there because they're obedient. They know nothing of the grace of God. They know nothing of the substitutionary death of, of Jesus. They know nothing. Jesus did not incarnate himself into the angel's experience. He incarnated himself into our experience. That we are people who are far greater than any other thing created because we're the only people that has received God's grace. The only creation that lives and experiences the love of God that would send him into the very grips of hell to save us. And no angel can say that. Angels will never know the grace of God. And we're greater in this life with the dissonance between our experience and Jesus's control just so that we will know his grace and depend on his grace and abide by his grace and be in love with his grace and be changed by the experience of grace. And when we fix our eyes on the experience of Jesus, all of our experiences get rightly ordered, fulfilling the very great salvation that we were promised. So church, we fix our eyes on Christ this morning. And at the same time, recognizing this, it is the common Christian experience to wrestle between the difference of Jesus's control and our experience. It's meant to be there so that we would know grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks God for this amazing text. Just blow our minds, open our hearts, give us joy, give us perspective. And I pray this morning, fix our eyes on Jesus. Whatever we came in here this morning looking at, whatever fear we are being consumed by, whatever pride we are elevating, may we confess and turn to Christ. Turn our eyes this morning by a work of your Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We can't fix our own eyes. So we know this whole sermon is dependent on one reality, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit in this room, make our eyes see. Make our hearts see. Make our spirits see. Make our affections see. Make our experiences see so that we will not be tossed by the waves of what we wish would be different, but that we would be held tight by the rock of Christ and him crucified. Pray in your name. Amen.